Hebrews chapter 11. We're reminded this morning in our singing of the uh, wonders of God in creation. I don't know if you've ever had the opportunity to look through those uh, two uh, books written by Bill McDonald. Um, the Wonders of God is the first one, and the second one is Our God is Wonderful. And so in there he has various chapters, uh, some of them on the wonders of God and creation. You know, we've been singing about some of those things, the magnitude and uh the immensity, how uh, immeasurable creation is. Um, you know, and the psalmist, uh, David, he understood this, that, the, that God, through creation, uh, shows his wisdom, right? He speaks to us through creation. Uh, even the story of redemption is in uh, creation. Well, uh, Bill moves on from there and talks about uh, incredible testimonies of uh, the wonders of God in redemption, how God reaches down and saves people. Uh, uh, one of my uh, favorites in the, in the Our God is Wonder, or the Wonders of God, is the story of a, a sister who lived in London and her mission field. Now, her mission field was um, the Heathrow, London Heathrow Airport. So she would go down there and uh, try to meet people and minister the Lord Jesus Christ to them. And um, the story goes that uh, she one day met a stewardess sitting on the bench waiting for her flight. And she sat down beside her and tried to connect with her. And and, um, there was something going on in the stewardess' life. And so this sister was able to point her to the Lord Jesus Christ. And... um, the Spirit of God was working in her life in such a way that she received the Lord Jesus Christ as her Savior sitting there. Um, and, and so then now she has to go on her flight and um, the sister will never see her again probably, except in eternity. So uh, she felt this uh, movement of the Spirit to give her a little booklet on, on discipleship, sort of help her in the next stage of her Christian walk. It was a book written by uh, Francis Schaeffer, you know, living... Uh, a life of discipleship, living the Christian life. And so the stewardess takes off and uh, performs all her duties for the first couple of hours on the flight and then eventually has this opportunity to sit at the back of the plane and start to thumb through this book, this booklet. And um, all of a sudden she sees the shadow of this man uh, standing over her and he says, um, Ma'am, do you understand that book you're reading, and she says, uh, actually, she said, you know, I've only been a Christian for two hours, and so quite frankly, I, I don't really understand what I'm reading. He says, well, um, why don't you slide, slide over one seat and um, let me sit beside you? My name is Francis Schaefer, and I actually wrote that book. Um, and so how God orchestrates, and there are uh, there are stories like that in this Building, right? I heard one yesterday of how God orchestrates uh, time and how He's working. And so we don't uh, suspect for a minute that we're not all here with, you know, purpose, the purpose of God, you know. And, and so our hope is that um, He might speak uh, to our hearts. And so 
Uh, I want to try and continue, if we can, the life of Joseph, and I want to do it from uh, Hebrews chapter 11, because sometimes, uh, you know, it's hard to get the the main point. I want to try and figure out what's the main point of the life of Joseph. Uh, What's the main point of the Bible? You know, if you had to think of, um, you know, one concept or one idea, you know, there's 1,189 chapters in the Bible. Um, you know, it starts like it ends. You know that, right? You know that it, it began in a garden. You know, it ends in a garden. Um, you know that it began in, in perfection, right? It was perfect in the beginning and it will be perfect uh, in the end, Right? Uh, you know, the devil comes in in chapter 3, right? He comes in in chapter 3 and, and um, you know, his exodus is in, you know, three chapters from the other end in ex- or in Revelation chapter 20 is his exodus. He's gone forever, never to uh, cause the world uh, problems again. And, and so it's been pointed out that, you know, God's perfect creation is marred by sin and, uh, you know, so you have, you know, two chapters this end, two chapters at that end. But the bulk of the Bible, the bulk of the Bible is God on a rescue mission, right? I mean, this is what the Lord Jesus said. You know, um, you remember that the scribes and Pharisees didn't work on Saturday. And they were offended that he worked on Saturday. And um, he said to them, hey, my father works 24-7 and I work 24-7. What's he doing in the world? Well, he's seeking to draw sinners back to a relationship with himself. And so if I had to think of the overall theme, it's this concept of the rescue mission. We need to be rescued from sin. Um, but I suggest to you that's the main theme of the life of Joseph as well. You know, that sin is uh, the basis of the whole story. And so we want to see that. We want to read together first um, uh, the Spirit of God's commentary on his life. Verse 22 of chapter 11, it says this, By faith Joseph, when he was dying made mention of the departure of the children of Israel and gave instructions concerning his bones. Now, I would challenge us this morning that if we were to go through the life of Joseph, the 12 chapters uh, in the book of Genesis, and think about all the great things in Joseph's life, um, the things he did, um, the things he stood for, how many of you, if you had a list of 10 or 20 or 30 ways in, in um, uh, which he makes us think of the Lord Jesus, how many of us would have this on our list? Well, I, I wouldn't. It's the last thing uh, that he says. Uh, but I wouldn't have thought that this was the main point. Uh, he made mention concerning his bones or instructions concerning his bones. What's the point of that? Well, 
certainly one of the ideas has to be that Joseph didn't live for the present tense. That, uh, as we've already seen in, in, in Genesis, he lived in this, what he called the fear of God, fear of the Lord. He didn't live for the present tense. He lived for the next life. And I think that's where I need to be challenged in my heart this morning. This idea of living for the next life, real life, um, at best, this life is a wisp that disappears. Now, um, I know it's hard for some to believe, but uh, you know, every year as I move through life, I realize it more and more. I have the opportunity in the summers to preach to kids. I like to preach to you know that eight to eleven-year-old kids. And so I'll say to them sometimes, "Hey, what's old?" They're like thirty. It's like, <laughs> trust me, thirty's not old. Um, that's their idea. It seems so far away. But then when you get there, man, it went fast. And so Joseph always had this before him, that next life. I mean, he had this success in Egypt. I mean, he rose to power, was exalted. But it was never his home. His home was somewhere out there. And so that's how he was able to live an impactful life. Um, Pharaoh changed his name. Uh, he called him Zaphnath Paneah. You know what some scholars suggest Zaphnath Paneah means? Savior of the world. I would suspect that's accurate. He did save the world through his wisdom. But he understood the seriousness of sin. And so we want to think about these two ideas as they go together. And so turn back to the book of Genesis. And... Um, Think about some of these chapters, some we've already read. Um, Genesis chapter 37, that's where his account begins. Is there sin in this chapter? Have a look at it, see what you think. Is there sin in this chapter? Yeah? Where? Where? Huh? Verse 8? Oh, they hated him? Is that a sin? <laughs> That's a sin. Um, their actions, right? Uh, they hated him without a cause. Uh, That's sin. Uh, they acted on it, right? You know, there's the internal, right? There's the internal. You know, sometimes what I think, sometimes they don't act on it, but it's still sin, right? Um, 
Some have put it this way, the sins of omission and the sins of commission, right? There's a difference, right? Isn't there? Um, you know, sometimes I do the wrong thing, right? I have these two, you know, things before me. Uh, somebody asks me something and I tell a bold-faced lie. You ever done that? I mean, you know what the truth is. And you tell a lie. You think, man, why would I do that? You know, those are the things I commit. Um, the sins of omission. You know, to know to do the right thing and not to do it, the Bible says that also is sin. Hey, that's in here. Sins of omission and commission, right? You know, the brothers knew what they should do. You know, some of the brothers took him. And um, uh, uh, some of the brothers took him and, and did the wrong thing. And then you got guys like Reuben who knew what was right, and he didn't do that either. So sin is in chapter 37. It's all throughout. Um, we read chapter 39. Uh, is there sin in chapter 39? Well, this is one of the most famous uh, chapters in the life of Joseph. You know, this is the one everybody's familiar with often. This in Potiphar's house. Is there sin in Potiphar's house? Yeah, absolutely. Um, Potiphar's wife. Uh, thankfully, in the story, uh, Joseph gives us a principle that we need to be reminded of this morning that uh, all sin, he says, is before God. Right? This is what happens. You know this. We read it yesterday for those of us who were here. And we read this story that um, when, when Potiphar's wife tempted Joseph, uh, Joseph wasn't thinking about Potiphar, although that would have been sin as well. He wasn't thinking about the action with the woman, although that would have been sin as well. He was thinking past that. He was, he was teaching us the principle that all sin is before God. That's a movement that we have to have in our lives. We have to move forward in these things. Um, um, my wife wasn't saved till she was 30. Um, about a week after she was saved, uh, I was restored to the Lord. I was saved as a boy, but I lived many years uh, away from the Lord. And so I was restored to the Lord about a week after. And our lives were uh, radically changed. Um, I remember, you know, in that period of time, we were excited, things of the Lord. And, and um, I remember Cindy saying, you know, I haven't sinned for two weeks. I'm like, yeah, me too. We don't say that anymore. I say, sweetie, how long has it been? She's like, it's ongoing. See, back then I didn't realize. Well, I was restored to the Lord. I was thankful for the cleansing blood of the Lord Jesus. I didn't realize how deceitful sin was. How deceitful. And I, and I don't, don't stand up here today to profess to you, I do. But I'm a little moved along. And so I suggest to you that that's the, 
story of Joseph's life, how he dealt with man's greatest problem. You know, how the Lord, through Joseph's life, dealt with man's greatest problem. Right? We believe that, don't we? That the problems in the world, um, they come from sin. The problems in the church, they come from sin. The problems in the life of a Christian, they come from sin. That's the issue. And so, thankfully, um, God, knowing this, has made allowance in the person and work of His Son for sin. You know, in Mark chapter 2, there's this account of um, this paralyzed man who gets uh, lowered down before the Lord Jesus by his four friends. And um, I like to ask the kids when I preach in the summer, hey, what's this man's greatest need? He's paralyzed. They say, well, to walk. I say, you know, I, I used to think that. But, you know, the Lord Jesus took care of his greatest need. Do you remember the Lord Jesus' first words to that man who was lowered down? Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. Sin's the problem. And, and so, um, Joseph knows that in 39 that all sin is before God. Uh, chapter 40. Is there sin in chapter 40? Yeah, there's sin in chapter 40. All right, we read through this. This is the story of the butler and the baker. Uh, there's sin there. One of these men is judged by Pharaoh for his sin. Right? And um, so there's sin in chapter 40. In chapter 41, um, there's this story of uh, years of plenty followed by a famine. Is there sin there? Yeah, there's sin there. Hey, we know this from reading the Bible that, that famine came for what purpose? Why did God bring famine? Because he hates people? No, because he loves people. And um, it's often in tragedy, like a famine, when we begin to assess the things that are really important in life. And so, hey, Elijah, who was a man just like us, but had a heart for people, Israel, the people of God. What did he pray for? Do you remember? He prayed that it wouldn't rain, that there would be a famine in the land because he didn't like the children of Israel, people of God. No, because he loved them. And so we see that in our life, right? My family testimony... Um, Hey, the first day my mom was in church, the first day she heard the gospel, you know why she was there? Because she'd had a fight with my dad that morning. Is that a stretch, do you think? Well, not that she had a fight with my dad, not that part. 
but that she would go from a fight with my dad to church? Hey, my dad was a, a wicked man. No question about that. Hey, my dad was saved uh, six months later uh, in a prison cell in Calgary, Alberta, waiting sentencing for trying to rob a bank in Turner Valley, Alberta. Hey, he's thankful for that experience in his life. Uh, he's especially thankful uh, today because he's in heaven. You know, that was the tragedy that brought him to the Lord. That was um, what made him begin to realize how much of a sinner he was. And so here's these men in prison. There's sin associated with that. Um, then the next process, we move past uh, 41, and uh, it becomes this opportunity uh, to work in the lives of uh, Joseph's brothers. And um, Joseph wants to see them moved, right? They need to be moved in their thinking, right? So there's this uh, story of them coming down and, and um, uh, uh, hearing about the, the way in which there was still food uh, in Egypt. And then that's verse 40, or chapter 42, Let's read a few verses. Verse 1 says, When Jacob saw that there was grain in Egypt, Jacob said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? And he said, Indeed, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down to that place and buy for us there that we may live and not die. So Joseph's ten brothers went to buy grain in Egypt, but Jacob did not send Joseph's brother Benjamin with his brothers, for he said lest some calamity befall him. And the sons of Israel went to buy grain among those who journeyed, for the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over all the land, and it was he who sold to all the people the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed down before him with their faces to the earth. Joseph saw his brothers and recognized them, but he acted as a stranger to them, and spoke roughly to them. Then he said to them, Where do you come from? They said, From the land of Canaan to buy food. So Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. Then Joseph remembered the dreams which he had dreamed about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said to him, No, my Lord. But your servants have come to buy food. We are all one man's sons. We are honest men. Your servants are not spies. We are honest men. Were they honest? <laughs> I mean, uh, that's realistically probably the worst person to lie to was the man they were standing before. Um, he knew everything about them. But, you know, that's the principle of the human heart, isn't it? Um, the one who knows us best, the one who made us, they often will lie to him. In fact, uh, salvation begins, doesn't it, with being honest with God. That's what he asks. Right? He knows my 
wicked heart. And, and so what Joseph starts to do is, is move these men through a process. He said they, they say they're honest men. He says to them in verse 12, No, but you have come to see the nakedness of the land. And they said, Your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And in fact, the youngest is with our father today, and one is no more. But Joseph said to them, It is as I spoke to you, saying, You are spies. In this manner you shall be tested. But the life of Pharaoh you shall by the life of Pharaoh you shall not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. And let him bring your brother, and you shall be kept in prison, that your words may be tested to see whether there is any truth in you, or else by the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. So he put them all together in prison three days. Then Joseph said to them the third day, Do this and live, for I fear God, if you are honest men, Let one of your brothers be confined to your prison house, but you go and carry grain for the famine of your houses and bring your youngest brother to me so your words will be verified and you shall not die. And so uh, it's encouraging to me that Joseph, knowing what he knew, meets them where they said they were at. You catch that? He said, if you're honest. I mean, he could say a lot more than he said. But he says... If you're honest, you know, this is the way in which the Lord Jesus dealt with the uh, woman at the well in John chapter four. Remember that story? Remember, she said, um, the Lord Jesus said, well, if you're serious about this, go call your husband and come. She said, Lord, I don't have a husband. He said, well, you know, that part's true. Uh, You don't have a husband right now. But you have had five, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And so she was moved by this. Uh, You remember when she went into the village of Samaria, she said, come see a man who told me all things that ever I did. And and so this is where uh, Joseph is seeking to move his brothers. Uh, The last verse in this chapter we want to think about, verse 21. Then they said to one another... We are truly guilty concerning our brother, for we see the anguish of his soul. For, sorry, for we saw the anguish of his soul when he pleaded with us, and we would not hear. Therefore, this distress has come upon us. And so, um, they're acknowledging sin, right? You see that they're acknowledging their sin, but what aspect of it? Uh, they're acknowledging their sin of how it affects them, right? That's what they're doing, right? That's what they're saying. They, they, they see the, the predicament they're in. They understand uh, that it's connected with their past behavior, right? But they need to move further than that. I mean, that can be the beginning, the working of the Spirit of God, but there's far more to understand with regards to sin than that. Um, I think of illustrations at this point that, hey, as a boy growing up, often um, um, I was sorry for my sin before my parents. Um, you know, my dad was a disciplinarian. Uh, he was raised, as I said, in a, you know, well, I didn't say that, but he was raised in a hard environment. And 
uh, he was physical. You know, um, we had a woodshed and we used to go to it. Uh, I don't know how popular that is now, but hey, when we went to the woodshed, it was not pleasant. Um, and so, hey, often I could be sorry for my sin, but sorry uh, simply because of the consequences that had to be paid for it. And so I suggest that that's as far as these men have moved. They say, yeah, we're, we're sorry about what we did to our brother, and now we're paying the price for it. So they haven't moved to where they need to be. So uh, Joseph sees that, and so he starts this elaborate process of um, seeing them moved from there to where they need to be, that, that place where they can be... Um, comfortable in his presence. You know, Joseph is a picture of Jesus. The, the, the Lord Jesus wants us to be in his presence, but sin has to be dealt with in its entirety, partially. And so Joseph starts to move these brothers along. And so um, that's chapter, the end of uh, chapter 42, he sends them back and and um, and uh, uh, tells them that they can't come back until they bring uh, their other brother. Actually, uh, chapter 30, or verse 37 of that chapter 42, uh, Reuben spoke. It says to his father, saying, uh, "Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands, and I will bring him back to you." Uh, Jacob then said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is left alone. If any calamity should befall him along the way in which you go, then you would bring down my gray hair with sorrow to the grave. And so uh, Joseph has said that uh, to prove their honesty, they need to uh, go back and bring their other brother down. And so uh, that's what Reuben has said. Reuben has uh, vouched for, uh, you know, that he would... He would, uh, if he didn't bring uh, the youngest son Benjamin back, that uh, the grandfather would be able to uh, kill his two grandsons. Um, the whole point is ludicrous, isn't it? Like as if, uh, as if that could somehow work. You know that uh, if Benjamin was lost, that somehow Jacob could feel better by killing his two grandsons, and so that whole thing doesn't work. So uh, they wait. That's chapter forty-three. Uh, they wait until they can't wait any longer. Uh, uh, the sam- it says in verse 1, The famine was severe in the land, and it came to pass when they had eat up, eaten up the grain which they had brought from Egypt, that their father said to them, Go back, buy us a little food. But Judah spoke to him, saying, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you send our brother with us, we will go down and buy food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. And Israel said, Why do you deal so wrongly with me as to tell the man whether you had still another brother? But they said, The man asked us pointedly about ourselves and our family, saying, Is your brother still alive? Have you another brother? And we told him according to these words. Could we possibly have known that he would say, bring your brother down? Uh, Then notice verse 8. Now, 
we saw it emphasized uh, yesterday that, that Judah's, or maybe on Friday night, that Judah's first words recorded in Scripture was, uh, what profit is there if we, if we uh, kill our brother? Let's rather sell him. And so now Judah speaks again. Then Judah said to Israel, his father, send the lad with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. Now notice verse 9. He says, I myself will be surety for him. From my hand you shall require him if I do not bring him back to you and set him before you. Then let me bear the blame forever. And so um, certainly the point uh, that needs to be emphasized is that, that in the beginning... In the beginning, there was the sin against Joseph, right? And so that's what they were acknowledging at the beginning, the sin against their brother. But there was also the sin against their father, right? And so even at the end of the previous chapter, when they, the men acknowledged that, that the circumstances uh, that they were in were because of the sin against their brother, they had not moved far enough. And understand this principle that, that Joseph had emphasized in chapter 37, that all sin is before God. There was the sin against the brother, but there was also the sin against the father. And so uh, Joseph can't at this point forgive them, or he can't certainly bring them back into his presence because they don't understand seriousness of sin. You know that... um, It's easy to see sin... Uh, in North America. It's easy to see uh, sin on television and um, in the morals of others or the immorality of others. But Peter, in writing his epistle, would say, those who should best understand sin are us seated in this room. In fact, he says this, that, that um, the judgment, the judgment of God must first begin in this room, in the church, he says. The household of faith, that's where it should begin. You know that um, often we pray for uh, revival and for an outpouring of the Spirit of God in North America. And we read these books uh, 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 that tell all these testimonies, how it happened in the past. Great revivals. Thousands, tens of thousands coming to Christ. Those are, those are real stories. Um, you can read the history books and every generation there's been great revivals of the Spirit of God in the lives of people. Um, tens of thousands being preached to, trusting Christ. You say, how did that happen? What do all those great revivals have in common? Well, it was a seriousness of sin in the lives of the Christians. They got serious about the things of God. You know, D.L. Moody, uh, and he was just one. There were, there were lots of 
great so-called revivalist preachers, uh, D.L. Moody witnessed a couple of revivals. He told a story of uh, told a story of uh, going on a little bit of a holiday to take a break from the work in Chicago, and he went over to England uh, just to have a few weeks off with his wife, and some friends, uh, a brother there. A brother there uh, had heard that he was in town, uh, met him at a weekly prayer meeting and said, hey, do you think you'd be able to come and preach at our church on Sunday? And so D.L. Moody said, yeah, he'd be willing to do that. And, and so um, uh, when he went there, there was about 400 people in the congregation And he said it was like standing in quicksand, you know, preaching in quicksand to get these people to move. There was nothing ice cold to the things of God. Uh, The brother said, can you come back and preach tonight? And um, he said he would. And uh, so that evening he came back and he said it was like not even the same congregation. Uh, When he gave a... uh, uh, call at the end for people who were serious about the things of God to stand up and publicly acknowledged all 400 people stood up, or almost all 400, and, and he thought maybe he hadn't made himself clear enough, so he again tried to explain uh, what he was calling people to do, and again, they all, it was this almost the whole mass stood up. Uh, they had a week of meetings and uh, saw 400 or the whole congregation uh, uh, revitalized, restored in their Christian life, and they saw another 200 or so added to the group. Um, it wasn't until some time later that he found out how it happened. Um, there were two sisters uh, in the church, and um, one of them was an invalid at home. She couldn't make it to the meetings. And um, she'd read about the revival in North America, and she prayed that God might send D.L. Moody to preach at her church. And so she'd been praying for this for some years. Uh, they say that when her sister was at church that morning, uh, she came home, she said to her sister, Marianne, she said, do you know who preached at our church today? She's who? She said, D.L. Moody. She knew that was an answer to her prayer. And, and so the Lord used that, but that great work of God, first it started in the hearts of the people. It started in my heart. And, and so this is where Joseph is, is trying to, to move his brothers, trying to help them to see uh, the seriousness of sin. You know, that's the ministry, the church. Right? This is the uh, ministry that, that James talks about. James, they tell us, is a a practical epistle, and we agree that it is. Uh, James ends with an exhortation, his last two verses, that that we ought to be involved in seeing souls saved from destruction, saved from sin. Now, those are brothers and sisters that he's referring to. You know, that it is possible for me to waste my life. I can tell you I have wasted a large portion of my life. And so it is possible for a Christian to waste their lives. And so this concept of Joseph seeking to bring his brothers along that they might see the seriousness of sin. Uh, 
It's a supernatural thing for sure. You see the wisdom of of God in Joseph's experience. Uh, He gets all the brothers. They come down in in, um, chapter 43. Judah's gone to be surety for his brother. And so Jacob lets them all go down. Uh, Joseph puts together a meal for them. Verse 32, it says, So they set him a place by himself, that's for Joseph, and them by themselves. And the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians could not eat food with the Hebrews. For that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they sat before him. Notice this, the firstborn, according to his birthright, and the youngest, according to his youth. And notice it says the men looked in astonishment at one another. Why would they do that? Eleven of them seated in numerical order. What's the odds? Well, what are the odds? One in a thousand? One in a million? One in a billion? Well, how do you figure odds out? Are there no gamblers in the, in the church? Oh, I guess you can't publicly announce that, can you? Um, One in 11 zeros, right? That's what it is. It's astronomical. They knew that something was going on. We say that the supernatural, uh, the way in which Joseph started to move his brothers to where they needed to be, it wasn't the things he said was working all these circumstances out to bring them to a realization. You know, this is how the Lord Jesus worked. He's gentle with us. And we're to be involved in this ministry, and we ought to be gentle with one another. Now, I need to be changed, right? You know, I have um, three daughters... Uh, no sons, uh, three daughters, one son-in-law. And so that's a challenge for me. You know, I work with them and it's good. I like it. Um, I'm not sure they would say the same thing. They'll say things like, you always yell. I'm like, well, okay, first of all, I need to clarify, you've never heard me yell, my thinking. Um, uh, but they read into that, Right? I mean, I think of how my dad was, and so, uh, but they're right, right? The feeling, the whole thing. And so that gentleness, hey, the, Joseph was gentle with his brethren. The Lord Jesus, gentle with people. You know, this concept here, the youngest according to his birthright, it says, or sorry, the firstborn according to his birthright and the youngest according to his youth. Um, keep your finger here. And turn to Jeremiah, chapter 17. Jeremiah, chapter 17. Jeremiah says in verse 13, halfway through the verse, those who depart from me 
shall be written in the earth. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living waters. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. Those who do that, their names will be written in the earth. Turn to John chapter 7. John chapter 7 is the Feast of Tabernacles. That's what it tells us in the first couple of verses. The Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was that seven-day period when Israel would camp out right under the stars and they would reflect on how God brought them through the wilderness. right? How he looked after them. Um, hey, one of the things they would have thought about is how he provided rivers of living water from the rock, right? That's what it says. It was rivers of living water that he provided. The Psalms tells us that more than once. And so they would reflect uh, on God's deliverance. And so, uh, you know, when we come down to uh, verse 37, it says, on that last day, That great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. They understood what he was saying. He was saying that that just like um, that rock that out of which came those rivers of living water, he said, I'm that one. And so, sadly, what happens is they don't listen. They reject him. Uh, They make a couple of lame excuses. You know, he wasn't born in Bethlehem. Well, he was, in fact, born in Bethlehem. They just never asked. Um, uh, Hey, no no great prophets ever came out of Galilee. They said, well, they were wrong about that, too. Were there any prophets born in Galilee? Yeah, hey, Jonah. Jonah was from Galilee. So they were wrong on both accounts. Uh, What happens? Chapter 8. Everyone went to his own house. Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, it says, he came again into the temple. All the people came to him and sat down and taught them. Then the scribes and Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. Now Moses and the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what do you say? This they said, testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he did not hear. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, Let him throw a stone at her first. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning from the oldest even to the last. What did he write on the ground? Well, chapter 7, they reject him as the fountain of living water. Jeremiah told us everybody who does that, their names would be written on the earth. So I suggest to you what he did was he simply leaned over and wrote their names in order from the oldest to the youngest. And so as those men were standing around watching what he wrote, 
how when they saw their name, hey, they were convicted in their heart. They would know this, hey, he knows us. That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 43. And and so the value of, of knowing this, what we're emphasizing today, is that the Lord does know us. He knows the dark secrets of my heart. You know, brother shared with me in the break that um, sadly the worst sins he's ever committed have been those sins he committed since he's been a Christian. Uh, I wish I could say it's not so with me. Hey, the heart is deceitful. It's desperately wicked. The Lord knows that. He's trying to, in the life of Joseph, picture that, that he's trying to bring the brothers to the understanding of how serious sin is. They get it. They get it. In uh, chapter 43, verse 34, Then he took servings to them from before him, but Benjamin's serving was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. What's he trying to expose? He's trying to expose whether they still had envy. Do you remember when Joseph was given a place of uh, prominence? They were envy against, or envious against him. Hey, but they're not now. Benjamin, they're glad for Benjamin. So there's already a change happening. And then in chapter 44, and we don't have to read it. You know it well. Um, this is the chapter where Judah stands before Joseph. Now, he has a, an opportunity that the cup has been put in Benjamin's bag. They've started to head for home. Uh, Joseph Stewart has gone after and caught these men. But they've said something like this, hey, listen, whosever bag it's found in, kill that person, the rest of us will become your servants. It's found in Benjamin's sack. It says the men got up, tore their clothes and came back. What's he trying to establish? What's he trying to set up? Well, he's, he's giving them an opportunity to be able to legitimately go home, which they never had in dealing with him. Right? They could really go home and say, hey, uh, Dad, uh, uh, Benjamin stole the cup and he's down in Egypt. Nothing we could do about it. They don't do that. Uh, they get up and, and uh, from the end of, or sorry, from verse 18 through to the end of the chapter is this graphic picture of how Judah appeals before Joseph for his father's sake. All sin is before God. Now they've been guilty of sin against Joseph. But they were also guilty sin against God, or sorry, against their father, which is a picture of God. And so, this is at that point, or at that point in the account in the story, that Joseph can see them restored. That's what happens in chapter 45. It says, "Then Joseph could not restrain himself before all those who stood by him, and he cried out, Make everyone go out from me.'" So no one stood with him while Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And so this becomes the point of reconciliation. Now, they're still ongoing, but this is at this point that they can be brought back in. And so uh, it's that process where uh, Joseph brings them to the realization. 
And so I think we need that. need that in my life. Not, not just sin in my own heart, but this idea of involved in those around me. We need that in the church. We need to be a help to one another. Sin is serious. And God deals with it in a serious way. Um, starts back at conversion. We know that. Conversion uh, at that point is where uh, we're forgiven for the penalty of sin. But you know, sin still needs to be dealt with and it's power in our everyday life. So you have these countless uh, teachings in the New Testament. Endless teaching in the New Testament of how we're connected to one another. And helping one another to be right with the Lord. Challenging one another. Um, I'm not sure how it is here, but you know, there isn't a lot. On our way, there's often not a lot of challenging of one another. I mean, um, how often does somebody ask you how your relationship is with your wife? How your relationship is with your husband? how your relationship is with your kids. You know, we come together every Sunday to break bread, to remember the Lord, to remember that this is the foundation of our Christian faith, finished work of the Lord Jesus. But you know, as we reflect on what the Lord Jesus Christ has done, it's not independent of relationships. You know, um, some years ago I was... um, preaching camp in the Midwest and um, on the Saturday afternoon uh, said something about, a, just said something in the message and a guy from way over there yells, oh, that's heresy. And I was a bit shocked, but um, like, well, okay, what part, brother? And he said, oh, just the thing about the arrow. And I'm like, oh, okay, well, I mean, it's not heresy. I just was my opinion, maybe. Maybe you're right. I'm not sure. That's fine. We'll just move on. Thanks, brother. And so uh, later that afternoon, he, um, he came to me and he said, you know, hey, I went back to the, my room and I read the passage again. And, you know, uh, you, uh, you might be right about, about what you said. And I'm like, oh, okay, thanks. He said, can you forgive me? I'm like, oh, yeah, for sure. He said, no, no, can you, can you really, can you forgive me? I'm like, yeah, I can really forgive you. Um, and so then he grabs me and kisses me. I'm like, Phew, that's a bit shocking. But uh, anyways, that's good. And uh, so the next morning, Sunday morning, we're going to remember the Lord. And so he comes up to me before the Lord's Supper and he says, Hey, uh, are we good from yesterday? I'm like, brother, we're good. He said, no, really, we're good? I'm like, hey, brother, we're good. You don't have to kiss me. We're good from yesterday. <laughs> and so um, before the Lord's Supper, just get started. This, this brother stands up, 350 people. He said, I just want to say that um, yesterday I made a public display and I challenged that brother and I was wrong and I've gone to him and um, I asked for his forgiveness and he's forgiven me. And now I just want to publicly apologize to all of you and ask for your forgiveness. And then he sat down. Think, man... um, you know, 18 years, 20 years of being in the assembly, breaking bread every Sunday, however many that is. 
how many times do you think I'd see that? I've only seen it once. You would have thought I've seen it a lot more. Hey, you would have thought um, I would have done it a few times, hey? I should have. And so, thankfully, the Lord is gentle with me, uh, just like Joseph was gentle with his brethren. But sin is serious. And so, uh, we want to see the work of God move forward. We want to have an impact in the world. But it does start here, my heart. And so, um, you know, First John 1, it's written to Christians. It says this, if we confess our sin, what does that mean to confess it? Well, it means to be honest with the Lord, <coughs> honest about what's going on in here. Best I'm able by the Spirit of God, if I confess my sin, it says He is faithful and just to forgive, cleanse from all unrighteousness. That's the beginning of revival. It always has been when we're serious about sin. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, uh, we just ask that you would, by your Holy Spirit, convict us, Father, of those things in our lives that need to be confessed and forsaken, those things that need to be changed. Father, we want to have an impact. We want to be usable vessels. Father, we know the vessels you're able to use are clean. That's the only requirement. And so we pray for cleansing. Father, we pray that we would understand the seriousness of sin. That we would, like Joseph, realize that all sin is before you, but yet you know us. You know everything about us. And you're willing to work with us and work in our lives. Father, thank you for each one that's here and each family that's represented. Pray you would bless us today. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. Have uh, two or three guys send Rob off.